Chapter 11, Epilogue Can we do anything about it at all? The picture I have drawn of the future that humanity may accept is certainly very different from the hopes of the optimistic idealists of the past and the present. Such people may argue that many unforeseen wonderful things have happened in the past and that it is idle to speculate about what other wonderful things the future may hold in store. They are forgetting that we are living in an entirely exceptional period, the age of the scientific revolution. I have called it a golden age, and I would remind them that during the course of history, man has assigned the epoch of the golden age at least as often to the past as to the future. Anyone who disagrees with my forecast must try to go beyond a vague optimism which merely expresses the confidence that something will turn up. In particular, he must find a really solid reason which shows how the threat of overpopulation will be avoided. The observation that it has been avoided in some countries during the last few years is not enough. Let him then give the fullest rein to his imagination. Let him suppose that anything is permissible, but let him follow out the consequences to their conclusion. I will venture to say that if he does so, he will find that one or other of two alternatives is the result. Either he will come to general conclusions not so very different from mine, he will find that his utopia, however pleasant it may be, in other ways, in the long run, will suffer from many disagreeable features of the kind that I have been considering, or else he will find that his imagination has gone so far out of the realms of reality that it contradicts the physical or the biological laws of nature. Nevertheless, for all of us, it is intolerable to think of the future unfolding itself in complete predestined inevitability for the eternity of a million years. There are two things we must do. One is to know, the other to act. As to knowing, in my introductory chapter, I described an analogy in mechanics, and I suggested that it should be possible to discover a set of laws, like the laws of thermodynamics, which would place absolute limits on what can be done by humanity. Biological laws cannot be expected to have the same hard outline as physical laws, but still there are absolute laws limiting what an animal can do. And similar laws will limit man not only on his physical side, but also on his intellectual side. If these could be clearly stated, we should recognize that many attempts that have been made at improving man's estate were hopeless. It is for others, better versed than I am, in the biological sciences to work out these laws. And it is in all humility that I put forward the basis on which it may be that they could be founded. 
The first principle is that man, as an animal, obeys the laws of variation of species, which condemns human nature to stay nearly constant for a million years. The perfectibility of mankind, the aim of so many noble spirits, is foredoomed by this principle. The second is that man is a wild animal, and that doctrines drawn from the observation of domestic animals are quite inapplicable to him. The third principle is that the non-inheritance of acquired characters, a principle familiar in animal biology but all too seldom invoked in connection with human beings. If these and any further principles as well, or any alternatives to them, were accepted, it might sometimes be possible through them to show up the absurdities of bad statesmanship, and certainly it would be the part of a wise statesman to work within their limitations, because only so could he hope to achieve success. What action can be taken about the future of the human race? I am afraid that the answer must be very little indeed, and this is for the simple reason that most human beings do not care in the least about the distant future. Most care about the conditions that will affect their children and their grandchildren, but beyond that, the situation seems too unreal, and even for those who do think about the more distant future, the uncertainties are too great to suggest any clear course of action. For example, consider the inevitable fuel shortage that is to come so soon. I know that my sons will not suffer from it very seriously, and I know that the 15th generation of my descendants will get no coal at all. Am I likely to refrain from putting coal on the fire on a cold evening by the thought that it may make one of my 14th descendants suffer for it? Such matters are so unreal to our minds that it is not to be expected that they will ever be given much weight. Life is always precarious, and it is so hard to be sure of keeping alive for even ten years that it is not surprising that no one should care much about what is going to happen even a short time ahead as a century. In hardly any of the affairs of the world, Will man really be interested in the more distant future? Still, for the sake of the distant future, something can be attempted more profitable than has been usual hitherto. Attempts at improving the lot of mankind have all hitherto been directed towards improving his conditions but not his nature, and as soon as the conditions lapse, all is lost. The only hope is to use our knowledge of biology in such a way that all would not be lost with the lapse of the conditions. The principles of heredity offer an anchor which will be permanently fixed, which will permanently fix any gains that there may be in the quality of mankind.
In the final conclusion, I had better declare my personal inclination. I do care very much about the future of the world, and I want most intensely my own descendants to play their part in it. However bleak the future, I am not content with the thought that it should be a world in which I have had no continuing part. No matter whether in the long ages to come, Life is to be a joy or a misery, and certainly much of it will be a misery. It will be an adventure that is well worthwhile. The End